you are you are first. Oh, it's me. My my honors. Okay, here we go. From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How you doing, Stephen? I'm good, Quinn. How are you? I'm well. It's been a bit of a crazy last couple of weeks, but other than yeah. that, it's been going pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty universal. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. Well, today, uh, we're here to give the people what they want, because people have been asking us to talk about WebOS. Today's the day. Which is fascinating because I feel like most people forget about WebOS. I haven't. I dream about WebOS every night. And so I'm stoked to talk about it. Do you, <laughs> wait, do you not, though? If this many people cared about it when it was around, it would still be around. Just saying, you're all guilty. I bought a Palm Prix, as we'll talk about. I used a Palm Prix, so I did my part. You bought a Palm Prix when it was a thing? Oh, yeah. We'll talk about it. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I, had a, uh, I had a Palm Pixie. I had an HP touchpad. I've done my part. I did not buy a touchpad. But mm. anyways, okay, we will get there. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So <laughs> on our Newton episode 400 years ago right. when we started this podcast, we talked about the term PDA. And even though not public display of affection, personal digital assistant, mm. we talked about how that was sort of a term that Apple brought to light, but how most people, I think including myself, honestly. And me. And you. Really connect that term with the company Palm, not necessarily Apple. Yeah, Palm was founded in the early 90s, 1992, uh, which is funny because this is kind of already around the time that things were picking up over at Apple. Yeah. Um, they were originally created to write software for Tandy's PDA, uh, nicknamed, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. The Zoomer. Wow. So if you see somebody with one of these, you can say, okay, Zoomer. <laughs> You wrote that. I stole your joke. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Yeah, it was a bad one. So you can you can take credit for it. <laughs> These devices, the Zoomers, were sold by Tandy, Casio, and a couple of other companies running an open source operating system named Geos, provided by GeoWorks. Man, there are a lot of Tandy, Casio. Who else is in there? It's not around anymore. It's a lot of dead companies. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? Casio's still around. They're making yeah. those cool G-Shocks. Yeah. You know, I've got a calculator watch they make. Okay, very cool. If they were, I'm really they cool. They were one of the ones where every time I would go to the store when I had to buy a Texas Instruments calculator for one of my classes, I was like, those Casio ones look way better. Mm -hmm. But they weren't allowed. Yeah, TI had a real lock on the education system here for me, too. Yeah, we should do a video on that. It's almost like video. criminal. Yeah. Uh, uh, <clears throat> a podcast. <laughs> you know, you, got, you keep getting called out by our listeners by calling them viewers. I know it's just like in your brain. I do. But. I do. It's in my DNA at this point. Oh, well. I know. Anyway, so dear viewers, it's not a surprise <laughs> that the Zoomer was a dead-end project. But the software written by Palm showed promise. And the software was divided into a couple different sections. The first was, and this is probably the most well-known one, Palm's graffiti system. Mm -hmm. And that was the system that allowed users to write on a handheld device very quickly using a simplified alphabet. So whereas the Newton tried to parse handwritten text by people, normal kind of OCR style, uh, graffiti for accuracy and speed went with special glyphs that were distinct enough that its recognition was really, really good. You did have to learn a new alphabet. For example, like a capital A was written by drawing two diagonal strokes for going the horizontal strike, connecting them, basically an upside down V. And so all of these glyphs you would learn and then you could write with graffiti. And it was very, very effective. I remember my dad knowing graffiti super well on his Palm <laughs> PDA and oh, was yeah. blazing through. He could write stuff like 
crazy fast. Yeah, I had a couple of Palm PDAs over the years, like in, in school. And yeah, you got really fast at it because mm-hmm. it was just sort of the, the as a very Johnny Ive quote, the essence of each letter, right? Like, oh, everything was intentional and simple. Do you remember, do, could you still write it? You know, I, I was looking at drawings of it online prepping for this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think I remember all of these. <laughs> Oh, man. That's cool. (laughs) I guess. Should do a race. (laughs) So Graffiti had promise. And in 94, it was announced that Graffiti would be extended to support a wide range of other handheld devices, including Mm -hmm. the Newton, General Magic's Magic Cap, Microsoft Windows for pen computing, through the use of software extensions. So they're obviously not building the OS, but hey, we're a plug-in and people want to use Graffiti, you know, will interrupt with your system. Okay. And I should say, because... We get a lot of questions about this. We we do hope to cover General Magic in a future episode because it's a fascinating story. Stephen, uh, I definitely know what General Magic's magic cap is. But for listeners who don't, uh, let me restate. I definitely know what it is. Mm-hmm. What would it be for those that don't know? <laughs> it was a, a group from Apple who struck out to make basically a PDA. Mm. But it was going to be like interconnected through this custom network. And uh, it was basically vaporware. It's a very sad story, but one that we will tell in a future episode because it really is fascinating. Okay. I'll study up. Okay. It doesn't sound like a real company or a real product name, so. Yeah, General Magic is a weird name for a tech company. (laughs) Okay, so Palm had other software beyond Graffiti. One of them was called PIM, or Personal Information Manager. Like the Newton we kind of talked about and the apps on our smartphones today, this software was designed to help users organize their lives by keeping track of contact information, calendar events, tasks, notes, and eventually things even like phone calls and emails. It's the heart of what a PDA is, is sort of this right. PIM type software. Graffiti struggled to gain traction. You may have noticed we really didn't talk about it on the Newton episode that much because it just really, that whole plug-in idea they had just didn't take off. Right. And Palm ended up being bought by U.S. Robotics Corporation, disappointingly not makers of robots, makers of modems. Yeah, that's a pretty cool name, but... uh... Yeah, wasted on a modem company. (laughs) Yeah, U.S. Robotics Corporation, colon, modem makers. They Hmm. ended up merging with the 3Com Corporation a couple years after buying Palm. And ironically, HP would eventually buy and shutter both 3Com and Palm, but we'll get to that in a little while. I will never forgive HP for this, uh, (laughs) for killing Palm. We're not supposed to get my blood boiling yet, but I'm already pissed off. It's too early in the episode. Okay. We'll go backwards. In 1996, Palm, man, Palm was perfect, released its first product, the Pilot 1000, and it ran Palm's own operating system, which was dubbed Palm OS. And Palm OS, kind of the bones of Palm OS, stayed for a really long time. Yeah. The 1000 had a hardware limit of 12 megabytes of RAM, but it came with, get this, are you ready? 128 kilobytes of RAM from the factory. (laughs) So if you were, (laughs) yeah. So early versions of Palm OS uh, couldn't differentiate between RAM and file system storage, which is the funniest thing ever. Uh, And so all of the applications were run from memory. I bet that was real fun on 128K. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was it was 96 and it was in your pocket. Couldn't have been that bad, right? Yeah, 12 years after the Macintosh shipped with it. I, I, I was sort of laughing at the <laughs> difference between 128K and 12 megabytes, but then I thought about what the Mac Pro comes with and what you can upgrade it to. How much RAM do you have in your Mac Pro? 
96 gigs, I think. Hey, hey, me too. I don't, don't. It's really not very much when you can fit a terabyte and a half yeah. in there. Yeah, it's like, oh, I got a tenth, <laughs> less than a tenth of what it'll do. So uh, the next year, they shipped the Palm Pilot. It had more memory, updated software, longer battery life. Prices range from 199 to 399 And from there, Palm kind of continued iterating on its small grayscale screen devices. It shipped HotSync which let users sync their PIM data from their PC and eventually to the Mac as well in between the Palm Pilot and your computers. Yeah. I remember HotSync. The logo was like a red and blue intertwined arrow, like data going back and forth. Oh, you know what? I never, I remember having seen that logo and icon around because my dad had one. I was probably playing putt-putt from... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the video game makers, uh, oh man, what was their name? Oh, Humongous Entertainment. But mm, Wow, I can't believe you pulled that out. <laughs> I can still remember and name half the roster on a uh, baseball game. They made. <laughs> <laughs> Pablo Sanchez, his MVP. Yeah. Do you know what you had for lunch yesterday or is that gone? No, that's gone. That's I have gone. no idea what that was. <laughs> yeah, but. So Palm was really starting to, to cook with gas. These PDAs were taking off and 3Com and what will be come a series a series of events over and over 3com decided to spin palm off as an independent publicly traded company in the year 2000 okay great time to do that right uh-huh. yeah we know what happened with that and the stock lost 90% of its worth over the coming year as the tech bubble burst bad Ouch. timing 3com bad timing yeah. That's not good. Mm -mm. So they lose 90% of their stock worth. And to try and stop the bleeding, Palm decides to let other companies license and use Palm OS on their own devices. Don't do that. Through a new wholly owned subsidiary company named Palm Source. Okay, you keep a track here. We've got 3Com, then Palm, now Palm Source. Draw on a diagram. Right, right. And they have handsets by IBM, AlphaSmart, Garmin, GroupSense, and Handspring all coming to market with their licensed OS. Handspring ended up being really good at this. They released several Palm OS devices under their own visor brand that really in a lot of ways were better than what Palm had been making. Mm. Uh, In 2002, it launched the Treo brand, a series of Palm OS smartphones with integrated cellular service and small physical keyboards. What happened happened with these guys? They just just took off. Palm OS was seeing a lot of growth, but mostly through Handspring. So Palm had kind of handed their baby off and Handspring was raising it into a... A giant man. That fell apart on me. <laughs> a giant man company. A giant man company. Right. Okay. And so in 2003, mm-hmm. the parent Palm Company over all of this said, what are we doing? They merged with Handspring and rename itself Palm One. Okay. So just to complete this loop, now you have Palm One, which is the old Palm plus Handspring. Mm-hmm. Palm One purchased Palm Source's portion of the Palm trademark the company that had the OS, they bought the trademark back and renamed itself Palm in 2005. They didn't buy the OS back, just the trademark. Now the company that had the OS was named Access, oddly enough, in all capital letters. Access! Okay, I have no idea what just happened. I don't either. I guess the gist was that this company was kind of a mess. Yeah. And that Stephen will make a flowchart and leave it in the show notes. That's, that's not something I can promise. <laughs> I read so much about this. It was ridiculous. Like it was just it was just shuffling chairs around, shuffling companies around. But let's get back to the tech. Back to the tech. So we're in the mid two thousands. Okay. The Treo is actually like really good. They have color screens, basic cameras, and I had one of these. I had the Treo six eighty on AT and T, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my phone right before switching to the iPhone. 
actually. Oh, and, you know, okay. I used it in college. I was at working, but I was in college. And it was fantastic to have all this information, get home, put it in its in its cradle, let hot sync fire up on my Mac and sync all my stuff back and forth. It was it was glorious. That's cool. Did the 680 have one of those little cat ear antennas at the top of the phone? Yeah, I think it was the first or second one where you didn't have to like extend it on your own like it was the 1980s. It's just a molded plastic hump or whatever. Yeah, and it, it was totally fine. It was a chunky boy by today's standards, but it was really cool in, you know, 2006. There you go. So the 680 is not the only phone Palm shipped, right? They shipped more handsets. Beyond those running their own OS, they shipped handsets running. Well, their running... siblings company's OS. Remember, they didn't oh, buy right, the... right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Such... Palm Ones? No, no, no. It was hands... I don't remember who, who was who. Access. It was Access. <laughs> Access. Access. Of course, of course. How could I forget that? So they also shipped handsets running Windows Mobile. And the smaller, more fashionable Palm Centro, which I actually remember, mm-hmm. uh, ran Palm OS 5. I remember the Windows Mobile Palms. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. It's like you got you got a good thing here. So you said a few minutes ago that the the bones of Palm OS stuck around for a really long time. Right. At this point, 2005, 2006, the platform is getting pretty old. Applications mm-hmm. are plentiful. There was a lot of software for these things. But it was clear they needed to keep innovating. The, the structure had been the same for a long time. There was also bugginess. I remember this even on my 680 where it would freeze. You, so you have to pull the battery out to restart it. Some people had data issues. Right. It wasn't great. And then, then the asteroid hit the dinosaurs. In January 2007, this little company named Apple, a guy named Steve Jobs, unveiled the iPhone, and he singled out smartphones like the Palm and others in his keynote. I'm going to play a little uh, audio for you here. Now, we're going to start with a revolutionary user interface. Is the result of years of research and development And, of course, it's an interplay of hardware and software. Now, why do we need a revolutionary user interface? I mean, here's four smartphones, right? Motorola Q, the BlackBerry, Palm Treo, Nokia E62, the usual suspects. And what's wrong with their user interfaces? Well, the problem with them is really sort of in the bottom 40 there. It's it's this stuff right here. They all have these keyboards that are there whether you need them or not to be there. And they all have these control buttons that are fixed in plastic and are the same for every application. Well, every application wants a slightly different user interface, a slightly optimized set of buttons just for it. And what happens if you think of a great idea six months from now? You can't run around and add a button to these things. They're already shipped. So what do you do? It doesn't work because the buttons and the controls can't change. They can't change for each application, and they can't change down the road if you think of another great idea you want to add to this product. Well, how do you solve this? Hmm. It turns out we have solved it. We solved it in computers 20 years ago. We solved it with a bitmap screen that could display anything we want, put any user interface up, and a pointing device. We solved it with the mouse, right? We solved this problem. So how are we going to take this to a mobile device? Well, what we're going to do is get rid of all these buttons and just make a giant screen. A giant screen. Now, how are we going to communicate this? We don't want to carry around a mouse, right? So what are we going to do? Oh, a stylus, right? We're going to use a stylus. No. No. Who wants a stylus? 
You have to get them and put them away and you lose them. Yuck. Nobody wants a stylus. So let's not use a stylus. We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with. We're born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. We're going to touch this with our fingers. And we have invented a new technology called multi-touch, which is phenomenal. It works like magic. <laughs> you don't need a stylus. It's far more accurate than any touch display that's ever been shipped. It ignores unintended touches. It's super smart. You can do multi-finger gestures on it. And boy, have we patented it. <laughs> so, Not everyone knew it at the time, but Jobs ended up being right. I mean, how many phones do you see with buttons on them today? <laughs> Even the iPhone barely has any buttons. <laughs> <laughs> right. At the time, though, it was a, a pretty bold statement. Uh, it looked pretty obvious, though, from the offset that Palm especially BlackBerry and other companies were, were in trouble too. But Palm especially was kind of in hot water with the release of, of the iPhone. And in 2008, Engadget founder Peter Rojas published an open letter to Palm, a big fan apparently. Uh, in it, he called on the company to make a thinner, more compelling piece of hardware and then went super hard on its software. Ready for this? This is brutal. Uh, Rojas says, if you've demonstrated any true wrongdoing in the way you've sustained your operating system, it's been your inflexibility in cutting ties and moving forward. Believe us when we tell you that's not the attitude embraced by a culture of techno-fetishists, your core customer. So don't be scared to kill backwards compatibility or threaten a little bit of what you're used to in order to gain important advances for your OS and devices. Sometimes you have to tear down to rebuild, and honestly... You have a lot to tear down, <laughs> he then goes on to say. So if Palm, which has been around for 15 years, doesn't have the user interface design and OS engineering expertise to pull this off, then you should just get out of the game right now. Seriously, if this new S you're going to introduce is just the old Palm OS with some slightly fancier graphics, your customers will come to resent you all the more. Respect their intelligence. Holy cow. <laughs> Rojas was pissed, dude. If you forgot a letter like that, I think you would just quit your job, whatever you were doing. <laughs> it's like, I think he's right. Yeah, he wasn't wrong. No. I mean, and that kind of gets us to our main topic today, which is the Palm Pre and its software, WebOS. Yeah. So let's let's start with the, the, the Palm Pre itself, the phone, and then we'll talk about the software. How does that sound? Okay. That sounds good. Amazingly, there's video of its keynote. I have it in the show notes. John Rubenstein is on stage, who had left Apple. Ended, uh, ended up at Palm. Mm -hmm. Questionable choice there. So it yeah. was introduced at CES in 2009. So this is basically two years after the iPhone was announced and, you know, I guess 18 months or so after it is shipped. Right. It was initially available on Sprint CDMA network and Sprint CDMA network only here in the U.S. So that's mm. a decision. That's not That's not a good move. The phone was a vertical slider, so it wasn't a slab like the iPhone. It wasn't like a like one of the treos where the keys were fixed in plastic below the screen. It was a touchscreen phone, and then you slid the screen up to reveal a keyboard underneath, kind of a, in like a smooth motion with your hand. This phone ended up going for sale in June of that year, 2009, just days before shipping. Get this. Verizon preempted Sprint. 
saying that it too would carry the new device, but in six months or so. Pretty vague timeline. Uh, Sprint replies saying that it already had exclusivity rights in the U.S. to the Pre uh, through 2009. So later in July, uh, Sprint begins selling the phone and Verizon notes that it would start selling the phone in early 2010. Six months of of Sprint exclusivity with uh, your biggest competitor saying, yeah, we'll have that in a few months. Don't jump to Sprint if you're a Palm fan. Just wait. We'll, We'll have it. Yeah, just wait. Ouch. Oh, boy. Uh, Sprint offered the device, by the way, for $199 after a $100 mail-in rebate and a two-year contract. I just have to say, I love carrier shenanigans. Like, I love when, like, T-Mobile and AT&T are slinging it out. <laughs> but, yeah, should have waited on Verizon. Poor poor Sprint. Yeah, they never, they never get it right. And to be fair, that's a pretty compelling price point for the phone. Yeah, the iPhone was about... Well, say this is two years. This is like the 3GS. It, right. It's it's in line with the the iPhone more or less. Okay, yeah, that's true. Was it was it 199 and 299 by that point or no? Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, with a two year contract signed in blood. Don't forget that. Of course. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So the phone, the pre, sported a 480 by 320 pixel, 3.1 inch touchscreen. It had actually even by today's standards, pretty attractively thin bezels on the sides, not on the top and bottom, because Mm-mm. above the screen was a large earpiece with a small metallic ball embedded into the plastic at the bottom. Uh, it looked like a trackball, but it, it wasn't. It didn't spin like a trackball. It was slippery, though, so you could be tricked into thinking that maybe it was moving under your thumb. But the screen under was underneath a smooth plastic shell, which was curved. And so it even by today's standards, dare I say this, I think it's still a pretty attractive device and looks relatively modern. The only thing that looks a little odd is the weird dome-shaped home button that was raised above the surface of the device. But other than that, it looked pretty good. The downside, obviously, is that the front was plastic. Jobs famously talked about how plastic was a no-go on a touchscreen device you're going to keep in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this device was susceptible to scratches. The back was plastic uh, as well, just like the iPhone 3GS and other phones. It was shiny black, like piano plastic. So it looked Mm. greasy, basically the second you touched it. Uh, You could easily clean it with the wipe on a pant leg or something. Mm. Um, The phone was about 0.67 inches thick uh, and it slipped in and out of pockets fairly easily because all these gentle curves. Palm said that it was like a smooth down river stone. And that description is really good. Like there's not a hard angle on this thing. It's very slippery and smooth in your hands. It's a very nice object to have. There was no front camera on the device, as we kind of mentioned earlier, but the phone was a slider and the Pre's designers came up with something relatively clever. So when the phone was extended, pushed all the way out, if you looked at the back, the mirror-like finish was kind of exposed behind the screen, which meant you could use the 3.2-megapixel rear camera as a selfie shooter, kind of. Sure. Yeah, it worked a little bit. I mean, there was no front camera on the iPhone at the time either. That didn't come till the iPhone 4 right. in later with the 2010, that would be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We should say the initially the Pre could not shoot any video, but, of course, the 3GS could do yeah. that introduced yeah. the same year. Ouch. I mean, today you look at the hardware and it looks kind of ridiculous. Yeah, like it's nice. Like I agree with you. It looks modern in some ways until you slide it open and see the keyboard. (laughs) I mean, keyboards aren't ridiculous, right? You've got one. Uh, Oh, I got many keyboards. Do you have it in front of you? A Palm Pre? Yeah. I do. You want to hear the sliding mechanism? Oh, I do actually. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to have it open. Let me close it. So this is me opening it and then closing it. Good sound. 
That's a good sound. Well, what do the keys sound like? I don't even know if you can hear them. Let's see. <laughs> they feel clicky a little bit, but they are tiny. I've got a couple of them, and and playing with them, I suddenly remembered you. I basically had to type with the end, of, the edge of my thumbnail. Because, mm. like, the pad of my thumb would cover up. I mean, just like the pad of my thumb right now, it's on the F key, mm-hmm. and it's covering most of D, E, R, T, G, X, E, V. Like, it is just like <laughs> a quarter of the <laughs> keyboard is covered up with my thumb. Okay, well, just because, uh, well, you know, the keyboard seemed a little cheesy now doesn't mean that it was viewed that way at the time. Uh, Josh Topolsky of Engadget wrote the following. Now, we won't lie. It's not quite the barnstormer of the Bold or Trio 650, but it's a very, very solid typing experience nonetheless. The keys, made of a similar rubbery material which the Palm Trio and Centros use, have a surprising amount of depth given their location, and they're actually somewhat clicky. A surprise to us. Spacing between the keys is ample, but we wouldn't say generous, though in general, getting accustomed to typing on the Pre wasn't too painful. (laughs) It's a really different time. (laughs) You don't feel the same, do you? Not now. I mean, I think even at the time, it. we'll talk about my history with it. I'll, I'll say that okay. for a second. Okay. He went on to write about the sliding mechanism that you just heard, this this business. Right. Uh, the pre, of course, contains a sliding mechanism, which reveals the QWERTY keyboard beneath. One of our first minor issues with, with the build quality is here. There's nothing tremendously alarming about how the two pieces connect, but there is certainly a small give when the screen is in its closed position. And he's true. You can kind of compress the phone a little bit. Uh, He goes on, sliding the display up, so to open it, however, definitely made us pause. At first, it doesn't seem like there's a tight clicking action you'd expect here. It does slide up and lock firmly into place, but there's a lot of play from point A to point B. For instance, if you slide the screen slowly, it's possible to have it stick in a half-open state. We also notice that there's a divot, a stopping point, early on when the slide begins, and the screen seemed to settle into it a bit too easily. Uh, he did say that over time with repeated use and the faster you open it, the sturdier it feels, which I agree. If you open it slowly, it feels terrible, but if you're really fast, it feels good. Okay. Did you buy yours used or is it new? Uh, mine are both uh, pre-owned. Oh, okay. Back in the day, I had a new one, but the ones I have now are used. So maybe they're worn in a little bit by now? Yeah, I think so. It does sound good, though. It does. It's the same thing like with the Z Flip or any other folding phone, right? Because it's very, it's very nice to have something in your hand that like makes noise when you do something with it. I don't know. That's true. Yeah, they've they've improved the sound of things. You want to hear what the Z Flip sounds like when you close it? You ready for this? I do. That That's a good. good sound. Just <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We have links to Topolsky's three-part review in the show notes, and you really should go and read it. He gets into the really deep nitty-gritty of just about every aspect of this phone and its software, which in retrospect is pretty interesting to see how hmm, maybe not awesome the hardware was, but how awesome the software was. Mm -hmm. One pretty unique feature of the Pre and its hardware was the optional touchstone charger. Now, the phone had a micro USB jack for charging and data transfer, which I will maintain to this day as one of the worst charging ports ever developed. Yes. Terrible. It would break all the time. Felt awful. Uh, But that's what was on Android phones until USB-C. Palm ended up selling an optional wireless charger for $69.99. And you got to frame this correctly because this doesn't sound impressive now, but this was 2009. Unlike most wireless chargers today... 
the touchstone actually held the phone up at a slight angle, and the screen stayed on while it was charging so that users could check the time and incoming notifications at a glance. It was also magnetic, which was cool because not only did it kind of snap into place when you dropped it on the wireless charger, but the polarity of the magnets was such that the phone would always snap and stay upright. That's something I kind of wish we had today because we kind of have this game on, on some wireless chargers where you have to wiggle the devices around slightly to get it into the sweet spot. That wasn't a thing with the touchstone because just boom, it's already there where it needs to be. The matte back mm -hmm. that came with the touchstone kit is really nice. It's nicer than the glossy black plastic, I think. Mm. Um, it feels better and it makes the front and back of the phone more recognizable by touch. With the glossy black back, they kind of feel the same front and back, okay. like how iPhones do now. It's like, I don't know which side is up, I feel. Which is say while we're talking about the, the back of the phone of the ports, there's a, a loudspeaker on the back of the phone that's in this like really pretty like circle of holes type design. Mm -hmm. And there's a headphone jack on the top dead center. Wow. So you could be rocking those headphones. Okay. So you actually did, the, the back was removable, presumably, because you had to swap yes. it out to get wireless charging. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Matt, Matt does sound better. So the touchstone, even if you weren't going to wirelessly charge, was the way to go just because you didn't get your greasy fingerprints all over the glossy plastic. Yeah. I mean, the Matt does get a little greasy, but it's it's way better. Mm. Interesting. So the pre didn't sell great. So exact numbers aren't known. Why not? Sprint, I guess. <laughs> uh, you have to imagine that being Sprint only in the U.S. definitely hurt it. Yeah. Uh, but over time, and we'll get into this, more carriers added it. Uh, and the, the pre sort of spawned a whole line of phones that we'll talk about. Um, but like the GM EV1 we spoke about last time, Palm had some pretty weird ads to promote this phone. <laughs> yeah, One in particular stands out. It's called Go With The Flow, which features a woman speaking to camera. She has a, a Palm Pre in her hand showing off the multitasking UI. But the phone is just visible for a few seconds. There's no explanations of the features to it. And just her, her whole delivery is really odd. Uh, I'm going to play the audio for you here. You ever have one of those days when everything just seems to work? Like when you're driving and all the red lights ahead of you are turning green. Going bing, bing, bing. Like you're not even trying. Just going with the flow. Okay, that is, uh, that's unsettling. I don't like that at all. Mm -mm. Why can't these companies get their ads right? <sighs> yeah, it's this weird kind of futuristic, like, welcome to the future. Everything yeah. is fine. Oh, stop. Yeah, stop. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's cleanse, a, uh, let's cleanse our palates with a word from our sponsor, shall we? Okay, I will do a non-creepy ad here. Well. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by our friends over at Backblaze. If you don't know Backblaze, you really should. They're the folks looking after your digital data with their unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs that starts at just $6 a month. There's no gimmicks. There's no add-ons. It's just 6 bucks a month per computer. This is something that I run on all of my systems, I have it on my family members' computers. You know, if you're going home for the holidays or visiting somebody, it's a great thing to make sure they have their data backed up. And it, it just stays out of the way. It sits in the menu bar on the Mac, and you can click it and see what's going on. It's all very easy to manage. And it gives me a real peace of mind knowing that if something happens to my house or my office, my data is safe and sound elsewhere. And what's cool is if I do have a problem, Backblaze can just ship me a hard drive with all of my data on it, and I've, I could restore it, 
get all my documents and photos and music back and then send the hard drive back for a full refund, which is really cool. The Backblaze client backs up documents, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, podcast recordings, sketches of palm trees you've made in a dreamlike state, everything that's important to you, Backblaze will grab, and it gives you peace of mind. It can really save you hours of work, I mean, days of work, months of work, who knows how much data you have on your computer, but you need to make sure it's on Backblaze. So go back up your stuff, go to backblaze.com slash flashback for your fully featured 15-day free trial and let them know you heard about them on Flashback. That's backblaze.com slash flashback for a 15-day free trial. Thank you to Backblaze for saving us from countless day disasters and for their support of this show and Relay FM. Thank you, Backblaze. Okay, so we've discussed that the hardware Palm developed was it was fine. It was, it was all right. Perhaps even good. But the operating system is really what shined. It was known as WebOS, which I might add is the best mobile operating system to have ever been made in the history of the world. Wow. How do you feel about that? Feel strongly? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But WebOS had a number of, for the time, really unique features. Stephen, you know how in iOS and Android – They've kind of stolen features from each other over the years, like iOS stole multitasking for iOS 4, or when Android stole the multitasking card view for Android Honeycomb, or let's see what else. Uh, iOS stole integrated SMS and web messaging for iMessage, introduced in iOS 5, and Android stole navigation gestures for Android 10 from the iPhone 10. Uh, Look, the reality is that all of these were stolen from WebOS. Not from each other. Every single one of those things was the thing on WebOS back in 2009 and 2010, which is crazy. Let's start with the card's UI. And to do that, we really need to talk about the iPhone. So tell me about the iPhone, will you? Yeah, it's a, it's a phone. It's okay. by Apple. All right. Never heard of it. it it's an, Who's Apple? It's an iPod. Mm. It's a phone. And it's an internet communicator. In 2017, with the iPhone X, the iPhone ditched the home button in favor of gestures, right? So you right. swipe up. You swipe up and hold for multitasking, swipe across for uh, recent apps. We, we all just have internalized this right now. Even the iPad has this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, most of these ideas were borrowed from WebOS. Some people think, some people named Quinn think, that they're still better done by Palm than Apple, which I guess we'll get to. The home screen uh, on iOS, it's known as Springboard and Android as a launcher. That was different for WebOS devices. It wasn't just a mere grid of icons and widgets. Hmm. Um, you'd go to the home screen in the same fashion as your as your iPhone, swiping up. But instead of seeing a grid of apps, you'd see your multitask apps in a card view, and you could swipe between them. And on the bottom of your screen, you had a dock for favorites, as well as a more traditional launcher to get to a list view of all your apps. Again, like Android, and as I should say, is, is that there's recording a rumor for iOS 14, so they're still <laughs> robbing the grave of, of Palm. Uh. What's more, at any time, in any app, so wherever you were, you could do a half swipe up and access the dock to quickly switch between apps. Uh, again, a feature that we saw just recently in iPadOS. So you have a pre. I do. You've presumably played around with it a little bit. How do you feel the home screen layout holds up today in 2020? It feels modern. Really? You know, I think I think this idea, especially on the iPhone, of just a grid of apps, that feels stale. 
in a way. And the the Palm devices, they feel like they're just right there with you and what you want to do. Yeah. It feels like it's just ready to go at any moment, even though the hardware is way less powerful. It feels like everything's just a, a swipe away where on the iPhone, you kind of have to dig a little bit. Interesting. That was the good stuff with later Palm phones, which we'll talk about shortly, and the release of WebOS 1.3. They added some other things that were uh, good ideas, but not quite as polished. Uh, they replaced the button at the bottom, which we talked about, with a capacitive horizontal touch strip. And they added a bunch of semi-wonky gestures as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of these gestures were actually good ideas, but because Palm's touch-sensitive swipe strip wasn't anywhere near as modern or as responsive as modern phones, yeah. they kind of felt a little bit wonky and unreliable. I had a Palm Pixie Plus, and they were almost good, but not. And I think it's a it's a fault of the hardware. But some of the things you could do was swipe in either direction on the touch strip, which allowed you to switch between apps without going to home, uh, which is a feature that iOS directly stole in 2017 <laughs> for the iPhone 10. You could also do a half swipe from right to left, which served as a back button uh, and a forward button. Pretty cool. You swipe left, goes back. You swipe right, it goes forward. Uh, in landscape mode, you could swipe on the strip to scroll up as well as uh, as well as down. So you, you turn the phone sideways, and that strip, which now is a vertical strip, you can use it kind of as a, as a scroll mm-hmm. bar. And it's really fascinating because this is not on the screen. Like, I don't want you guys to miss that. This is a, a touch strip in the chin of the phone below the screen. So you're not swiping over UI, right? That That's one of the problems I have with really with iPhone and Android both, mm-hmm. is that so many of these gestures are happening on top of applications. And sometimes those applications don't realize it's a gesture until you accidentally do something and then you're navigating away from it as something happens, right? You can have those <laughs> conflicts. I think more so on Android than than, I, than iOS. But right. Palm fixed all that or avoided all that by putting this touch sensitivity separated from the screen. And also, you know, these were smaller screens, so they didn't want to cover content. Right. And while the hardware could have worked better, I think the idea of this was really good. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, Android phones, like you mentioned, they kind of maintained those three buttons that we're used to seeing on Android, the back, home, and multitasking view. Those were, for a long time, either dedicated physical buttons or touch-sensitive areas. Yeah. And they've kind of gone the way of the iPhone, and they were doing it before the iPhone did it as well, but kind of integrating that into software. And it just, it's generally okay but there's sometimes benefit in having a, a dedicated function for a specific key. And look no further than something that WebOS called MetaTap. MetaTap. Now, that's a cool name. That is a cool name. <laughs> it basically was a modifier key that allowed you to perform shortcuts with the physical keyboard. So you'd push down on the touch strip, which again was touch sensitive, and then you would push a physical key on the keyboard. It seems kind of archaic, but WebOS had a menu bar, just like a computer. Kind of. So if you swipe down at the very top left of the screen, you could also see at the top left of the screen, there was the name of the app that you were using. You would truly get a menu style list with a bunch of system and application specific items like copy, paste, application settings, save, etc. And to the right of the item, it would show you a hotkey or meta tap feature. Uh, the most common meta tap was cut, copy, paste, and it functioned exactly like a computer. You'd highlight the text you wanted to copy, you'd hold the gesture bar with your finger, and then you'd click C on the keyboard. And then to paste it, you would press V on the keyboard while holding that touch strip as well. That specific function might not seem more efficient than iOS or Android's flag menu uh, for copy and pasting, and I'd kind of agree with you there. But when developers did a good job, it was actually really useful. I vividly remember on my Palm Pixie, 
a mail client that I used that allowed me to cycle through folders. So I could hold the touch bar and tap I for the inbox, tap T for the trash, Ooh. tap Y for a program that a folder that I programmed into the app, and, and so on. If you were a power user, it saved a lot of unnecessary tapping and kind of made a physical keyboard a bit of an asset where you know kind of everyone else was abandoning it. Plus, it was called MetaTap. MetaTap. It sounds like a Pokemon or something. <laughs> it does sound like a Pokemon. <laughs> what would its power be? Uh, filing your email? <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be a ghost Pokemon because it's not around anymore. hey yo. There's a lot of good stuff, some bad stuff. Uh, one of the cool things is called Synergy. So Palm introduced this, and while today it may seem like a standard feature, it really was a big deal at the time. So Synergy would sync all of your social, calendar, and contact stuff together and sync between them. So there's this promo video. It's, it's in the keynote as well, some examples of this. Someone accessing multiple calendars in one place, receiving a text message from his sister about a dinner reservation needing to be moved. And a couple of taps, he updates the calendar event with directions and automatically sends a text message to update his sister of the time and location of the new appointment. Stuff... I mean, at the time, on other phones, we're taking you, you know, multiple trips to multiple apps. WebOS did its job to kind of fluidly move you between the steps. Now, Apple had a very different take on this. So in 2007, there were native apps, but that was pretty much it. And eventually we got, you know, you can build web apps and put them on your home screen. And then, of course, eventually we got native apps in the App Store and and then, you know, Apple just ran away with with the game, but um, that was in between was kind of a stopgap, right? Those those web apps that ran in Safari. I remember them. They were really bad. They were really bad, and developers knew that that it was it was not great. But it it was sort of a stepping stone. But WebOS actually took a similar approach with their development platform, following in the steps of Apple, going sort of web, like not native code, but web code disguised to look native. Yeah, they had what was called the Mojo Framework, and it was heavily based on open standards at the time, um, HTML and HTML5, which was new, uh, CSS and JavaScript, of course. But it also added support for gestures, universal search, notifications, and more through their special non-standardized APIs. So Palm stated that this was because they knew they were late to the mobile game. I mean, this was 2009 when they launched and really 2010 by the time they started picking up Steam. And they didn't want developers to have to learn new languages or do difficult ports from one platform to another. Rather, that the transition from open web standards to a webOS app could be seamless. Wait. It just kind of stopped. Is that why they call it WebOS? That kind of just clicked, <laughs> kind of just clicked for me. <laughs> I think that's why they called it WebOS, dude. Oh, well, the more you, <laughs> the more you know. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, oh. mental weakness there. I mean, if they had come with native apps, would it have been native OS? I don't know. Oh, good point. It raises a lot of questions. Mm. Anyways. It would have failed even sooner, I think. Yeah. So you have Mojo Framework, which is just a whole name right. in and of itself. Initially, ports were positive, and despite the slower hardware, these like cross-platform web apps generally performed better on WebOS than they did on iOS, and certainly on Android. Android really didn't have a good structure for this in those early days. Android wasn't good until five years ago. Let's just let's just put uh, that agreed. Out there. Yeah, if even if even that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I was reviewing those phones, and I go back and look, and I'm like, uh, yeah. you'd go back to an iPhone, you'd be like, oh, why did I ever leave? Mm-hmm. The hardware is the answer. Um, you get you get enticed by flashy new features, and you shift over, and it's a good time, and then you come back to your iPhone, and you're like, this is boring, but it just works all the time. <laughs> so WebOS was this weird hybrid, I suppose, meant to make app development easy. But it also was – I generally remember my experiences with WebOS, even having gotten my first WebOS device after it was discontinued. I got my Palm Pixie Plus in probably early 2011, and it still felt pretty responsive for the time. What's so interesting about all this conversation, web apps, is that yeah. that's still a thing, right? Like if you poke around on your Mac or PC, yeah. you got a lot of these things – Electron apps, right? Slack, right. Electron app yep. is basically this, right? It's web – technologies, which is the thin veneer of native code to make it launch out of your dock. It's it's so interesting how these things like come and go over the years and they're gone on mobile, but here they are on the desktop. Time is a flat circle. Yeah, more prevalent than ever, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So maybe, uh, maybe you know, WebOS was a little bit ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of the desktop, development had actually begun for WebOS on Windows after HP acquired Palm, and we'll talk about that whole thing in a minute, but Wikipedia states the following. HP announced plans for a version of WebOS by the end of 2011 to run with Windows and to be installed on all HP desktop and notebook computers in 2012. Neither ever materialized, although work had begun on an x86 port around this time involving a team in Fort Collins, Colorado. However, work was scrapped later in the year. Uh, Never ended up being a thing. Would have been cool, though, maybe. Yeah, WebOS was cool. It had a lot of good ideas. It was fun to use. I mean, you're like swiping around doing stuff. It was great. So let's talk about the other hardware that came after the, the original Pre. Okay. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you had a Pixie. I did. That was a smaller phone, a 2.63-inch screen, and it was a fixed keyboard under it. So no sliding mechanism, right? It was just... Candy bars, they'd call candy it. Candy bar. I was searching for that word earlier, candy bar phone. <laughs> yep. Totally forgotten it. It was actually thinner than the iPhone at the time, but... To keep the cost to where it could be sold for $99 on contract, mm. they cut some corners. So the CPU was slower. Multitasking from some of the reviews I read was was pretty chuggy at times. Uh, the Pixie lacked Wi-Fi. Yeah. So it was CDMA or nothing, which was rough. <laughs> which is crazy. And it had a, a mind-blowing two-megapixel camera. So even the camera was a downgrade from uh, the Pre itself. Yeah. And speaking of the Pre, I mean, the original Pre was pretty underpowered as well, and and Palm knew it. Reviews also critiqued the phone for its mediocre battery life, just terrible, even if the Touchstone wireless charger was kind of novel for the time. You don't have to use it all day. (laughs) Right. Uh, So about a year after the original Pre, Palm introduced the Pre Plus. It doubled the storage and RAM to 16 gigs and 512 megabytes, respectively. If you think about 512 megabytes of RAM or 256 in the original, that's why it felt slow. Because those web apps, just like today, take a lot of memory. Yeah. This launched, are you ready for it? Okay, let's hear Verizon it. exclusive on day one. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Verizon finally get their phone. <laughs> and uh, oddly enough, the, the pre, so the Pre Plus would make it to Sprint and others, but only the Verizon model had the 512 megabytes of RAM. The other Pre Pluses had 256. Ouch. Uh, and this is where I come in. So I was using an iPhone. This is before the iPhone was on Verizon. And I needed to switch to Verizon because uh, where I was spending a lot of my time, there was just no AT&T service. Right. So I ended up using uh, the Palm Plus, Palm Pre Plus on Verizon for quite a while. And then I switched uh, to the Droid, the Motorola Droid, 
as well and uh, gave my wife the pre. And honestly, like we both loved the pre. Um, I like the droid too for different reasons. It was very – the palm pre is like a, a, a beautiful river stone. You know, the, the original droid was like a weapon Batman designed. <laughs> it's like black and gold and angular. Yeah. Can I just say that the droid campaign was one of the worst things to ever happen to the Android parent? Yes. <laughs> I still hear today people referring to Android devices as droids. They're like, oh, is that the new droid from Samsung? It's like all murdery and masculine. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. It's like droid. Droid. Yeah, it was a little odd. Okay. Well, the design was very similar to the original pre of the second pre, the pre plus. But as we mentioned earlier, the little home button vanished in exchange for the same LED slit, which was found on the Pixie. Uh, The keyboard was adjusted slightly and it lost the nice splash of orange that had been used to highlight the number pad on the original pre. Uh, Unfortunately, the battery life was not improved from the original device. Come on, Palm. Yikes. Also, don't ever get rid of orange. Tech products need more orange, not less. Right, exactly. I am totally in agreement with that. As, as you mentioned, the Pixie would also receive a plus treatment, and the Verizon version even got Wi-Fi, so that's cool. Yeah, great. Yeah, but <laughs> it was kept as a – it was the entry device, right? It was the cheaper right. option if you didn't if you didn't want the pre. Again, we have reviews to all these things. I got to say, Engadget killing it on the WebOS front. Like, there's just so many Engadget links this week. So the Pixie and Pre Plus both came with WebOS 1.4. It did it several things. It allowed for video recording on all WebOS devices. So I said earlier, you could just take photos, no video. They changed that in software because mm-hmm. I guess you could do that and improved many of those synergy features, making all that stuff work a lot better together. Yeah. HP announced Palm Pre 2. Wait, who? Uh, HP? Yeah, right. Uh, so we'll talk more about that in a second, because that's a whole thing that needs its own little timeline. Uh, Palm Pre 2 was announced in the fall of 2010. It ran at 1 gigahertz. Ooh. Uh, but that actually was a huge upgrade from the 600 megahertz clock speed found on all previous oh, pre-models. Wow, that's yeah, a big jump. Big jump. It also kept the design found on the Touchstone-equipped Pre Plus, but the camera had been updated to 5 megapixels. Unfortunately, uh, not all was green. Uh, reviewers complained about longer autofocus times, and the video capabilities that were brought still only captured at a measly 640 by 480 resolution. Not great. The screen was the same, but now instead of plastic, it was covered in Gorilla Glass. So Mm. it would resist scratches and scrapes much better. I think probably also gave it a much more premium feel. Well, that was probably curved glass too, no? Uh, A little bit? Probably a little bit. I actually don't even know. Yeah, I tried finding a Palm Pre 2 and um, it gets expensive quick. (laughs) And look, I just bought an EV1 shell for $62,000 or whatever. So I'm just kidding. Oh, right, right, right. That's that's on back order. Hey, I spent $400 on Zoom. So $500. (laughs) <laughs> this is an expensive podcast. It really is. Okay. <laughs> so we have the Palm Pre 2. It's got glass, got all this stuff. Yep. Less than a year later, in February 2011, HP announced three devices. The HP Pre 3, which is a fantastic name. Yeah, Pre 3. The Veer, spelled V-E-E-R, and the Touchpad. Do you want to start us off with the uh, Pre 3? Yeah. So the Pre 3 rocked along with a 1.4 gigahertz processor, which was pretty nice, a larger, more impressive and vibrant 3.6-inch display with a pixel density, I guess a resolution, I should say, of 480 by 800 pixels. Pretty good. Uh, which is a really nice upgrade from the Pre-2. The slide-out keyboard was still present. The form factor looked pretty similar, but the keyboard did have larger keys than before thanks to just 
the device's larger size in nature thanks to that bigger screen. It also, uh, well, the five megapixel camera was still available on there, but it now was able to shoot 720p video, which was kind of updating it to, to meet the needs of the times. Uh, it also had a front-facing camera for video calling, which uh, was cool because it came with an integrated copy of Skype ready to rumble out of the box. Now we would call that bloatware, but back then that was a nice thing. Skype's already here? <laughs> Don't have to install yeah. it? Right, right. Exactly. Okay. Here's the thing. Okay. The Pre-3 never really went on sale. Oh, man. Some consumers in the UK got their hands on them through Carphone Warehouse, but it never actually officially launched on AT&T, even though both companies had announced it. And by the time HP shut down Palm, spoiler alert, in the fall of 2011, only a small number of these phones had trickled out, mostly actually on Verizon in the US, and most of them HP sold directly to its own employees. Yikes. And they are very difficult to find. Yeah. There's one on eBay for $140 that Ooh. has 20 bids on it and two days left. So that's probably going to go up into the several hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Super rare. And uh, just, it's kind of sad. Like, can you imagine having worked on that for who knows how long and just. Yeah. It just never just comes. Blur. That's a sound that the pre three makes. Blur. I'm going to own one though, one day. I feel like it's my duty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Unlike the ill-fated Pre-3, the Veer did end up on sale for nearly five months. Ooh. Pretty good, right? Uh, it was seen as the successor to the what was now dead Pixie. And so it had a small glass-covered 2.6-inch touchscreen, but it ditched the kind of candy bar form factor found in the Pixie and adopted a slide-out keyboard similar to the Pre. And it looks like a Pre that kind of got left in the dryer too long. <laughs> it's like a, little, yeah. like a little flatter and melted and more, I don't know. It's it's a very strange looking device compared to the rest of uh, little little baby pre. It's it's not only smaller, but it's it's kind of it's got like a weird flatter smushed look to it. I don't know. It's not the most attractive device at all, uh, especially in in white, which was an option for the first yeah. time on a WebOS mm. device. Yeah, just a, a weird little phone, six gigabytes of usable space. So not not great on that front tech front either. Reviewers actually did praise the small device's speed, and WebOS 2's fluid interface kind of danced around the small display effortlessly. It went on sale for $100 on contract and was a low-cost alternative to other phones on the market, which had kind of at that point already been going up market a little bit. So that brings us to the touchpad, mm -hmm. which is just a whole story in of itself. So this was a tablet yeah. running WebOS 3.0, which was... Basically the same as previous versions, but ready for larger displays. It launched on July 1st, 2011 in the U.S. and was on sale for a mere 49 days. <laughs> <laughs> Better than the Pre-3, not as good as the Veer. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's rough. Sad we're measuring metrics in days and not months or years, but yeah. It lived in the shadow of the very popular iPad 2. And in fact, initial sales were like 25,000 units or something, which is just absolutely nothing. It gets crazier yet because I actually owned an HP touchpad. <laughs> <laughs> I even went back and found some pictures that I posted on Instagram in what are the most 2011 looking photos I've ever seen. Uh, there's way too much of the X Pro filter. I was not a good photographer. I'm still not, but I was terrible back then. But I owned a touchpad. It had a 9.7-inch display and initially sold for $499.99. That was for the 16-gig base model. If you wanted the $600 uh, model, you would get an extra, well, you double your storage to 32 gigs. Now, it 
doesn't seem that crazy because that was the same cost as the ubiquitous iPad 2. But it wasn't an iPad 2. <laughs> Build quality was just not even close to what Apple was doing. It had a plastic shell. It was glossy plastic on the back. The whole thing was flimsy. The display didn't look anywhere as nice. And it attracted fingerprints super easily. It did have Beats branding prior to Apple's acquisition of Beats by Dre. Uh, and the Beats branding was really was talking about the speakers, uh, which, to be fair, were actually pretty good tablet speakers. They were praised for their volume and clarity, much better than the iPad at the time. There was one number that jumps out at me that HP promised to have 300 apps ready at launch and another 6,200 apps available in phone compatibility hmm, mode. Of course. Like the iPad right. did, right? Just for comparison, I looked it up. Uh, I think the month before, Apple had a press release touting 100,000 iPad apps on the App Store. <laughs> well, they're only 97, 97, wow, what even, 97,700 apps behind? 99,700. Um, Not good. I went to college, guys. Believe me. Uh, yikes. <laughs> so... What gets even crazier yet is that despite it being powered by a 1.2 gigahertz Snapdragon processor, which was pretty respectable for the time, uh, boot took forever. Boot times were well over a minute. I actually remember this vividly because the you know the iPhone and the iPad weren't fast either, but the the touchpad was so slow, and it ran benchmarks like the Sun Spider JavaScript benchmark noticeably slower than the iPad 2. Uh, there was a, a big problem with productivity mm. on the okay. steel, right? Which which is like a big argument in the. Um, in the iPad world, you know, to this very day. Uh, but there's a bit in Tim Stevens' review, and he says, the touchpad is unable to create or edit Office-like documents out of the box. It does ship with quick Office pre-installed, but that offers read-only views into productivity files. And even that was a feat it couldn't have managed long. After a few days of use, the app stopped working. It would just never load ever. We're told a fix that would be coming soon, and that document editing would be available by, quote, midsummer. Look, it wasn't all that bad. The multitasking UI did look great on a larger display, and WebOS 3.0 included a feature named Touch to Share, which allowed you to share URLs, phone calls, text messages, and data for third-party apps between the touchpad and the HP Pre-3 by tapping the phone on the touchpad sensor. Pretty similar to the share sheet that we see now on Android and iOS. Yeah, it's like AirDrop, but you touch your devices. Right. A, a friend of mine, Sean Blanc, bought one of these and reviewed it. And I just want to read a little bit from his review. After nearly a week with the new HP touchpad and WebOS 3.0, my overall impression is the touchpad is less than the sum of its parts. There's nothing the touchpad does that the iPad cannot except play Flash video sometimes. Remember Flash video? Uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot find one feature or function that was significant or compelling enough to take the touchpad seriously compared to the ipad yikes Woof. that's rough mm. sean so the the touchpad is probably best remembered for how it died right. on august 19th 2011 hp dropped the cost four hundred dollars <laughs> that meant that it was only 99 dollars for the 16 gigabyte model and 149 for the larger 32 and uh man that's that's rough uh they quickly sold out and hp announced one final production run to meet demand these were used to fulfill existing orders at businesses like Best Buy with set prices of $249 and $299. Pretty, uh, pretty rough. I actually got my touchpad at Office Depot on August 20th, 2011. It was two days after it was discontinued and just 51 days after it was released. And I paid $99. You paid the right amount. <laughs> I actually probably overpaid. 
<laughs> probably ever made. All of this reminds me of that famous T.S. Eliot line. This is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Yeah, it was uh, not good at all. And it was not representative of the WebOS experience that I had on my Pixie Plus and Pre 2. Uh, the tablet was very kind of kludgy and felt very slow compared to those other devices. I should say that maybe my $99 wasn't lost, however, because the community over at XDA eventually found a way to unlock the touchpad's bootloader and install, are you ready for it? Android <laughs> on the tablet, <laughs> which I did. I installed Android Honeycomb, and then a number of months later, um, there was an ice cream sandwich port as well. So I ended up running ice cream sandwich, and then I don't know if I sold the tablet or lost. I have no idea where it is. I think I must have sold it. And for $99, it was actually a pretty awesome Android tablet. Well, I mean, as awesome as an Android tablet could be at the time and can be today. <laughs> So let's talk about the end of WebOS. We've jumped around a bit in time talking about software and hardware, but what, what happened to WebOS itself? Okay, so first of all, we need to back up to 2010 when HP acquired Palm for $1.2 billion. <laughs> Palm had put itself up for sale just a few weeks earlier after the slumping uh, sales and massive losses of the Pre and Pixie Plus became kind of too much. They just didn't sell in quantities that Palm had hoped. And in Palm, HP seemed to see a future in which it could become a relevant consumer brand again, something that it had lost as companies like Apple rose to prominence with the iPhone and RIM with its line of BlackBerry phones. Oh, oh, WebOS. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about the difference between the hardware and software, how they're good and bad, and one caused the death of the other. <laughs> yeah, it really did. Yeah, so HP buys Palm. Low-key, $1.2 billion, no big deal. A little more than one Instagram. Mm -hmm. You measure everything in Instagrams. Ouch. Well, when you put it like that, <laughs> it sounds like a terrible deal. <laughs> a big part of this move, though, was legal. Palm had 452 patents with another 406 applications on file. Some estimated that Palm's intellectual property alone was worth $1.4 And think about 2010, the tech world is just everyone's suing each other. Mm -hmm. You have like Apple, HTC, Samsung, all these companies fighting over patents. And this gave HP real ammunition if one of those other bigger companies came knocking. All right. Well, they're only, it wasn't that patents were the only reason they bought Palm. It was probably a, a big reason. But HP said that it was going to continue investing in WebOS, that it wasn't done, that they bring new devices to the market. And, and they did. I mean, we saw their efforts with the Pre-3, kind of, the Veer, and the touchpad. <laughs> like four people saw that effort. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but HP decided that in the end, the Palm Pre, Palm Pixie, and their Plus revisions uh, would not see over-the-air updates as they had kind of been promised earlier. So those devices, the original devices, never saw WebOS 2, uh, which was not Lame. great. Not good when your brand is already kind of in an unstable position. As we discussed, the Veer and touchpad <laughs> were on sale for very short periods of time, and the Pre-3... Barely made it out the door at all. I think it was pretty clear that HP wasn't interested in a handset business after all. Yeah, guess not. HP CEO Leo Apotheker. I don't know if that's how you say it. That sounds pretty good. That sounds good. Yeah, okay. He left the company in fall of 2011 after a disastrous year at the helm of the company, a period of time where HP's stock dropped by 40%. Whoa. Yeah. Oops. In August of that year, 
HP announced that it would discontinue all WebOS devices. That's where your touchpad <laughs> went on sale. <laughs> yep. And that it was also interested in selling off its personal computer division. So it had personal and like right. professional lines, I guess. It was going to sell off the consumer business. These changes were abruptly announced, causing the stock to drop another 25%. <laughs> As you would imagine, this set a lot of things in motion internally at HP. And they reached out to Meg Whitman, who had served as the CEO of eBay, to run the company. Meg Whitman, if you have heard her name recently, she's the first employee of the secretive video streaming platform Quibi, which has raised all of the money. Indeed. Whitman didn't reverse the company's previous decision about WebOS, unfortunately, but the company did honor its word on releasing the WebOS source code under an open source license, all while saying that it was looking for a buyer that would take another swing at making WebOS a viable platform in the smartphone war that was unfolding between Android and iOS. They, they wanted to, you know, help someone get it out there, even though they knew they weren't the ones to do it. Uh, also, how do you open source something and offer it for sale at the same time? Like, <laughs> yeah, that is a little, hmm. I mean, I guess you're selling the patents and stuff that surround the open source code. Sure. I, I don't, yeah. it's, it's weird. As you'd imagine, the news of WebOS demise was met with sadness from its small but loyal user base and... And the tech industry chimed in. And of course, Engadget, who was <laughs> Yet again. on the WebOS beat, <laughs> they wrote this massive editorial where a bunch of staff wrote. And I want to read something from uh, Darren Murph's section of the editorial. He says, it's tragic, really. Loads of software jobs are bound to be lost. And one of the strongest competitors to Windows Phone 7, iOS, and Android is all but dead. Do you really expect a developer to waste another moment of his or her life building programs for an all but defunct platform? Sure, HP is playing lip service to the whole thing by confessing its evaluating licensing options for the platform, but only a company with more money than sense would attempt to sell a WebOS device now. Palm couldn't do it. HP couldn't do it. The odds aren't exactly in the favor of whoever tries it next. That's sadly true. Linda Levitt kind of bemoaned the lost potential of an integrated HP platform by saying, I have to hand it to HP for having a vision, though a world where all HP hardware, tablets, PCs, printers, phones, features WebOS working together in harmony sounds pretty great. Sadly, this dream was shattered after the launch of the Veer and the touchpad, both of which failed to pick up commercially in competition with Apple and Google's mobile phones and tablets. Not all is lost, though, because HP would end up finding a buyer for WebOS. Just maybe not in the way we think. The buyer? None other than LG. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, well, do you know how uh, WebOS lives on today, Stephen? I do. It's in televisions. Yeah. In fact, I actually own a WebOS TV, and I must tell you, it's it's very good. Apps are quick and responsive. The remote has this gyroscope inside, and so it kind of operates a little bit like a Wii remote in that you can use a mouse pointer to tap on stuff rather than jamming a directional pad or daring to swipe on something like the abysmal Apple TV remote. Uh, you, it's so much better than that. It's unbelievable. I have just about every streaming app I can imagine on my LG WebOS TV, including Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, it has Google Assistant built in, AirPlay, and DLNA support. It's It's just really great. But the thing is, it's not... It's not WebOS, or at least it doesn't feel like it. In fact, the only similarity I can really pinpoint is that unlike most other smart TV interfaces, which use, <laughs> kind of like smartphones, a grid of apps, LG TVs have this tab-based launcher that pops up at the bottom of the screen, allowing you to switch apps without interrupting content, which in retrospect was kind of similar to WebOS's uh, little bottom bar design. But that's it. I've spent time with these and it does feel very fluid. I would imagine that most of... Well, 
is left of WebOS is like under the hood, you know, with its multitasking and all that stuff. As these things go, especially with Palm, there's a lot of corporate fights and miscommunication. More than a third of the WebOS team left LG within a year of acquisition. LG's original plan was to have a card style view with rich media for trailers, social media feeds, pictures, video sharing, you know, website content, all this stuff. The WebOS team allegedly fought tooth and nail to avoid this kind of interface, thinking that it would be too much to deal with. Yeah, it was bad. It was like a carousel of content that you just had to scroll through. It sounds terrible. It was really strange. Really strange. Luckily, weeks prior to, again, CES, <laughs> where WebOS was to show up again, uh, it was determined by LG that the UI was far too resource demanding and the system was crashing and sluggish. And then they sort of came up with the design that we see today that you just praise, which I think is really good. Uh, and it's heralded by many as the best smart TV interface, even if it doesn't really look like WebOS of yore. And I, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but from my experience with it has been pretty positive. Yeah. On another cool side note, just as HP had open sourced WebOS prior to licensing it <laughs> or selling it, I guess, LG has also followed in its footsteps and has done the same. WebOS is available uh, open source today on the web. You can go check it out, play around with it. I what are you going to do with it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know, but one could, I guess. <laughs> that is not the only remaining sign of life. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you got Android running up on the touchpad and a bunch of other crazy ports have since come to light. As recently as 2019, the XDA community implemented support for the touchpad to run Ubuntu 18.04 LTS, that long-term support version, mm -hmm. with a custom HP touchpad development environment based on XFCE to run stably on the, you know, now nine-year-old hardware. Like, why are people still doing this? Dude, people love their touchpad. They love Palm. Pretty wild, huh? I know. And uh, kind of like our good old friends at Nokia, the Palm brand continues to get passed on to whomever's willing to pony up the cash for it. Uh, that happened to be, in the case of Palm, a tiny Silicon Valley startup uh, started by Dennis Milozeski and Howard Nutt, or Nuke, I don't know, and Stephen Curry. That's right. That Steph Curry, who was not only an investor, but the face of the brand. And you've probably seen this around. You probably saw news when it was released. It's that weird little tiny Palm phone that was introduced in late 2018 that was originally intended to be a companion phone, kind of like your smartwatch. So it would use the same data plan and phone number as your regular smartphone. The idea being that on the weekends or when trying to be more with it, like the cool kids, you could leave your big boy phone at home and then just take the Palm phone, which would still afford you basic smartphone features should they be required without having to lug around a big, bulky iPhone. Mm -hmm. Kind of goes without saying, though, nobody really wanted this. <laughs> the phone was too small to be useful. It had an awful camera, which, sorry, golden boy, people want during their night out on the town. And battery life was reported to be extremely poor. And the $350 price tag was a hard pill to swallow. It's a lot when you can go buy an Apple Watch for less. <laughs> <laughs> right. And is arguably better at doing even better at being a phone. At everything. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> D Dieter Bone, who's a big lifelong Palm fan, wrote the review of this for The Verge, and it's just the saddest thing you've ever seen. The company announced in April 2019 that this mm -hmm. Palm phone, which really had nothing to do with the old Palm, just had the name, that it would be functional as a standalone device. So it didn't have to be your secondary phone. And they lowered the price to $199, again, locked to Verizon. So I guess if you don't want to buy a now very old iPhone SE and want a small phone and you like burning money, <laughs> go, it's now contract-free. So go uh, go spend your two ninety nine and just go crazy. Uh, they, they got rid of the two-year Verizon contract, but then raised it 100 bucks. So back to $300. Don't buy it. Don't. 
don't 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 buy, don't do don't buy it. it. <laughs> it's bad. So what do we learn? I guess um, everything good dies. <laughs> Sad. Yeah. (laughs) Everything that's important to me is gone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, I miss a lot both Windows Phone and WebOS. They weren't as good and they weren't as open as the accessible kind of Android and they weren't as stable as the really, really locked down but just solid iOS. But I'm I'm sad that we kind of settled on a duopoly. Phones are largely boring today. Even this Z Flex I have, which folds in half, is its the same as everything else. Mm-hmm. Both Android and iOS are great. They're as good as they've ever been. But because they're so similar now, they also share many of the same flaws. And it makes me sad that there isn't more people and more companies that kind of got in the mix to shake things up. Because even though WebOS didn't rule supreme, it made iOS and Android better and still continues to today. And I feel like it died before it deserved to. Also, when you die... Tech companies will come and pick your bones clean. (laughs) That they will. They will steal everything you made and implement it better. You know, Windows Phone was in the mix with this, but now we just have two, right? Effectively, we have iOS and Android, and that's it. There's still like one or two Symbian devices sold a year, but other than that, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) but you know, as far as like smartphones that matter, it's these two and... It's, it's, it's really kind of follow desktop OSs, right? Where you have Mac OS and Windows. If you're on Linux on the desktop, please email Quinn, not me. Uh, yeah. See, here's the thing. I mean, I understand why we have two major platforms. Developing for different platforms requires an extraordinary amount of time and resources. And I think already with just the two, developers are some kind sometimes constrained, especially on smaller teams. It's often why we'll see an iPhone release first and then an iPhone release or an Android release, you know, many months later. Um, and a, a third platform would just really throw stuff in the mix. I don't want to blame Apple or Android here, but I feel like both have kind of gotten complacent. And smartphones are so good, so it's hard to think in ways in which they could be better. But I also don't really think that many people are thinking how they can be better. <laughs> They've stayed largely the same. So to keep WebOS alive in our hearts, just think about it every time you swipe up on a card to quit an app on your iPhone or enter multitasking on Android. Just think about WebOS and the life it could have had. And with that, I guess we close the episode in tears. Should we? Maybe we, like those who owned the GMEV1, should throw a funeral proceeding for the for the Palm Prix for WebOS. <laughs> I'll invite Dieter. Yeah, he can yeah. officiate. He'll, he'll be the uh, be the king of the funeral. Oh man! Is that what it's called? Is it called king of the funeral? I don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, funeral king. Yep, funeral king. It's a it's a thing. Most of us are at home. We may have some free time. Go watch this keynote for the Palm Prix. It's incredible. All this stuff can be found in the podcast app you're listening to us in right now, or on our website relay.fm/flashback/four. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. You can become a member and support the show directly, which we'd really appreciate. Uh, If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter as ISMH and my work over at 512pixels.net. Quinn, where can people find you? You can find me everywhere on the socials at SnazzyQ and at YouTube.com slash Snazzy. And until next time, say goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Adios.